Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Jetpacks are overrated. Welcome to another Jetpacks Are Overrated. I'm Seamus Byrne. This week marks the 15th anniversary of Kogan.com. So today I am interviewing the founder and CEO, Rosalind Kogan, about the history of the company and that journey from, from there to here. I first met Rosalind probably about two years into that journey. I was the editor of Gizmodo Australia at the time and... We covered a lot of those early products and the early days of the company, his battles with Jerry Harvey in the media, his efforts to build uh, one of the first Android phones in the world, uh, lots of other kind of interesting little moments in those early days. And so I reached out and asked if uh, Rosalind would be interested in catching up to reflect on those early days, the lessons from them, and the journey since then, all the way to becoming a publicly listed company. I think it's a fun chat, and hopefully there are some lessons in here for businesses of all stripes when making their own journeys through this digital era. I particularly enjoy his thoughts on why he decided to engage in a bit of media battling with Jerry Harvey and the value that that brought to his own business. Enough preamble, here is my conversation with Rosalind Kogan, CEO and founder of Kogan.com. Clearly, things have evolved for you so much, um, and it just seemed like a great excuse to catch up and you know think back on, I guess, you know where it started and how much things have probably changed over the years as well, right? Well, yeah. Um, thank you for that, and appreciate it. And you're spot on. There was even at dinner at my parents' place the other day. We were, you know, discussing the concept of inflation and how. Um, you know, McDonald's used to have the 30 cent soft serve cone and now it's like 70 cents and all, all of those sort of things. And one thing I mentioned was how I've got this poster in my office of uh, an ad we ran for a 46 inch TV for under 3000 bucks. We, we had broken through the $3,000 barrier. It was a HD TV, didn't even have a built in tuner. <laughs> yeah. And now, now you can get a 46-inch LED with uh, smart TV, all of the apps, 4K, like all, all of that for like two ninety nine. So yeah. <laughs> it's just, it, it's crazy how, yeah, you know, I think that 
that, that encapsulates how times have changed and how different things move in different directions as well. The, the soft serve cone becomes more than double in price, but a TV is less than <laughs> a tenth of the price. Yeah. And I mean, look, you know, I mean, back when one of the, the first time we met in person, I'll always remember because, yeah, you dropped by my office which was literally at my, at my in my flat um and you had like a, a gps watch at the time which was a chunky beast of a thing but it was a gps watch which was kind of totally something that so, you know it was hard to get and if you wanted it it was probably going to cost you you know a grand you had to be like a super specialist trail hiking type person if you wanted to get one um but it, that in particular makes me think about you know sort of how i guess your sort of space where you're dealing with you know, sort of these OEM type manufacturers and stuff, you've obviously been able to evolve your relationship with them to, you know, have more influence in the way things get designed and stuff. But, you know, how has that journey been for you in being able to, I guess, in generally seeing the state of that market and that what the floor quality is now, right, for for cool tech, um, as well as your ability to sort of, you know, play in that game? Yeah. Well, I do remember visiting your place and I do remember that GPS watch. It's, uh, <laughs> that watch in and of itself, is there's quite a bit of a story behind it because I spent quite a bit of time on that thing and um, I knew that GPS watches would be popular and um, I had worked with the factory and the chipset maker to build certain functionality into the watch, including the ability to download uh, the GPS coordinates in a CSV and then to be able to use that file um, in other apps and software and things like that, which yeah. you know, isn't an easy piece of um, functionality to explain to people. Now you've just got integrations between Strava and Google Fit and Google Earth or whatever and all these various other apps. Back in that day, it was about downloading the raw file and being able to view it and analyze it in certain <laughs> things. And as you say, it was this big chunky thing and I remember the watch was a flop like it it was a great piece of technology but it was a flop in the sense that not many people wanted it and we had finally just nearly sold out of it and we only had um, a few hundred units left in stock and overnight one day a blog in Spain I think it was Gizmodo or Engadget Spain had written up a review on this watch because someone had somehow gotten it to them. And within hours, we completely sold out. And then we had thousands of people asking us when we're going to get more in stock. So it it was a very interesting product, that (laughs) GPS watch. But it, it has been quite a journey for us because the very first order with our manufacturers, I had to beg them to make it for us. Like I remember uh, they said that, you know, the amount of TVs I want to order isn't enough, that they deal in mass markets, they've got to set up production lines. And I actually helped them out by redoing a lot of their user manuals and sales documentation in order to convince them to want to work with us. Um, I still actually reflect on that email chain every now and then, and um, I sometimes show it to some of our staff um, in our office of like, you know, that, that very first Kogan order. Now we're obviously at the point where uh, we're a huge contract manufacturer um, out of Asia and we get to dictate a lot of the terms with our um, suppliers in the sense that, you know, we can tell them, no, this product has to be like that and there needs to be a USB-C port there and we need to add this functionality and we need to rewrite the software 
um, to do to be able to do these features and so on. And now, when we speak, our partners listen and they and they'll make the products to our specifications and based on our designs. That's not something we were able to do 15 years ago. <laughs> 15 years ago, we were a beggar coming along and um, you know finding good quality products and then begging factories to want to work with us, promising them that we're going to be bigger in the future. And you know we've thankfully fulfilled on that promise. Yeah, and look, yeah, what, yeah. What is the big lesson from those early days? Because I've always loved that story about, I guess, you finding you're finding the way to give something back to them in order to build that relationship and get those first orders placed. You know, are there things from that that you do sort of carry with you? And and I guess, as you say, you sort of communicate that to the team sometimes. What do you think is the the big lesson for almost any business out there to take from that sort of effort? Yeah. I think the big lesson is that a lot of people view a negotiation as, you know, which party is stronger or firmer or who needs who more than they need them sort of thing. But that's not really what negotiation is about and not really what business deals are about. What it really is about is finding a win-win. And that was me at that stage looking at this interaction with the factory and saying, well, look, my order isn't big enough for them to really care about. So there's no win-win here. Yes, I'd love to have the product, and that is of huge benefit to me, but they're not really that interested. How do I make them more interested in working with me? And that's where I came up with the idea to do to redo their user manuals and marketing uh, material. And that's the lesson I think that's come out of it, that, you know, Companies big and small can form alliances and partnerships. You've just got to find and really understand um, what each business wants, what each customer of each business wants, how to delight those customers and engineer solutions that create that win-win. Yeah. And uh, look, yeah, my dad is a huge fan of your stuff. He like, I, It's funny in that almost in that sense that over the years, he's, he's bought things where he's like, oh, I, there was something wrong with it, but... I, you know, I called or I, I checked in on online. They picked it up. They swapped it. It was easy. Like he's kind of feels that comfort in the relationship of going, I know I'm going to get something that's good. And it's like, it's, it does what I want it to do. It's at a great price. Now and then it wasn't perfect, but they've got the, you know, the process in place. You know, I feel like some people kind of still kind of look down on sort of your version of doing things versus, you know, the super polished, you know, the big brands who, you know, push things around. Like, what do you feel like people actually don't understand about that sort of relationship? Because I do feel like there's a lot of other people out there like my dad who just completely sort of love that relationship with Kogan. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that uh, we are a smaller business that's growing very fast. And we haven't had the marketing budgets that uh, a lot of our competitors have had. So we've always been focused on being really lean and passing those cost savings onto our customers. So we do win customers through the fact that they're like, well, I can go to Kogan.com and I'm going to get a decent price on everything. And if I buy one of their exclusive brands, it's going to be a value-based product. You know, what, what I'm buying, what I'm buying in that category is value. And our business is growing very fast, but there's still a lot of people who, if you walk down the street and you mention Kogan to them, um, a lot of people would not have heard of us. And um, those who have heard of us would probably say, oh, yeah, that's the place 
that makes TVs because that's our flagship product and our flagship range from 15 years ago. So um, a, a lot of it comes to do with, you know, brand trust takes a long time to build. And while 15 years, we feel like we've been doing this for a long time in the scope of e-commerce because I remember back in 2006, we were like one of the first companies going around telling people that e-commerce and online shopping is the future and there's um, a lot of potential there. Um, so in that in that sense, yes, we're, we're a grandfather of e-commerce. But in the sense of retail and trusted brands and, and things like that, we're just a baby. Yeah. Like trust, trust takes decades to build. And if you look at some of the most trusted brands in the world, they're not brands that are 15 years old. They're brands that are 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. So, you know, we look up to brands like that and we hope to one day get there. Yeah. So, you know, what do you feel like has changed about Kogan along the way? And I think of that question as both the business and then and you. Yeah. So, uh, huge change all around. Like, um, if you if you look around at the business, we are now a company that's got over 10 million items listed on the website. We've had over 3 million shoppers shop with us in the last year. Uh, we've got divisions like Kogan Mobile, Kogan Internet, um, insurance, Kogan Money Credit Card, um, you know, and pet insurance like Kogan Energy, like we've got, you know, the electricity in my place comes through Kogan. Um, it's it's a way different business to when we started that um, we actually reminisced at a lunch recently with one of our um, oldest team members. He was one of the first uh, employees in the business and he was joking about how one of the earlier goals in the business was and milestones was to reach $50,000 of sales a day. Um, and now that's something that happens by like 12.02 a.m. Um, <laughs> you know, so there was even, I remember on Black Friday, we somebody did the maths and it was uh, that we were doing uh, sales of every few minutes what the business did in its entire first year. Uh, and and that that puts that puts the the scale of things in perspective. It's just you know comparing the business fifteen years ago to now clearly shows you all all of the things that have been developed. And the most incredible part of that is uh, I remember having um, our first employee, and we were doing pick and pack um, on the kitchen table at my parents' place. And mum, after a few months, you know, just having enough of it and uh, telling me that it's probably a good idea to find an office. <laughs> and now we now we have a team of several hundred people of, you know, the greatest e-commerce minds in the country and constantly challenging each other, thinking of new ways to delight customers. So it's just incredible of that uh, impact um, that we've been able to have. For me personally, I think... I don't know, like I, I'll sometimes go and read emails that I sent around the time the business was started or, you know, we're, with us using Google email accounts, it's a 
search don't sort methodology. So yeah. sometimes you'll, you'll type in someone's name or um, an email address and you'll stumble across an email from 2008 <laughs> yeah. and you read it and you're like, did I really write that? <laughs> like, you know, it's on the record here. It's <laughs> like, why would I say that? Or why would I behave in such a way? Um, and, and that's the sort of stuff that makes you realize that, you know, how much you develop as a person because if when you're working in a business that's growing at 100% year on year always, you as a person have to try and keep up with that and have to try and develop. One day you've got a team of four people, one year later you've got a team of 10 people and then another year later it's 20 people and, you know, you've got to develop your people skills, your management skills, the way that you work, enabling your staff, getting them to um, you know, get the most out of uh, their work, keeping everyone happy, keeping everyone driven. Um, it, it, it really is a, a tremendous journey. But when you compare any day to any one day, it just seems that, you know, it's business as usual and, <laughs> yeah. and things are continuing as normal. It's only when you you read emails that you sent 13 years ago that you think, well, um, things have really changed and I'd never, ever say that again. Yeah. If the time travel version of Roslyn got to kind of walk in on a meeting you're having now, they'd be like, wait. <laughs> yeah. It's like the day-by-day the day is gradual, but, yeah, there's a, you know, a decade later you're like, okay, I'm probably a different person. <laughs> That's it. Spot on. Okay, so a fun question. What's the what's the best toy you've bought with your success? Ooh, best toy. Um, it's an interesting question because I remember it was a few years ago when I bought my first drone and it was like, so DJI who, are who make really amazing drones. I was onto them before there'd even been a DJI drone in Australia. And I had, um, toured their facilities in Shenzhen and we'd set up an, um, an agreement and we became the first in Australia to start selling them. And I remember I got my first drone and things were so busy at work that it had been there for like a week and I hadn't opened it. And I remember telling my girlfriend or my now wife that it's really concerning because the real me would not let a drone sit there unopened for a week. And then I remember we we took it across the road and we flew it into the park and that was the first time in a long time I felt like a little boy again, just seeing the images come through on the phone and seeing that, like, you know, where you can fly it and how how high you can fly it and setting up waypoints and letting the drone fly on its own and getting really excited when the return to home functionality was actually working, um, all, all, all of that sort of stuff. So, yeah, when you say excitement out of toys... Yeah, it was a it was a DJI drone that got those would be the the most recent thing that got those excitement levels uh, going. Awesome, um, look, I'd I'd love to kind of look back on you know I, I don't know if it's like your your white whale or anything like that, but the Agora phone was kind of such an amazing moment where you know you managed. You, I remember, yeah, you had it in your hand. We saw it at an event one time. There were clearly all sorts of complications. You know, I mean. What looking back on kind of that moment for you? What did you learn from that experience? Are, what are the things that you know you can and can't say to this day about sort of how it didn't quite work out? 
Yeah. The biggest lesson as a business person that I probably learned from that is it's always better to do first and talk later. But I was just so excited at the time that I was, you know, talking about our plans and what we're planning to do and the internal plan is doing this, that, and so on. And, um, yeah, I remember with Android and and keeping an eye on Android when it wasn't even really a thing. And, yeah. You know, Nokia probably had huge market share. And I was out there at that time saying, look, an open source platform for mobile devices, this is a game changer. This is what's going to, uh, you know, enable the little guy like ourselves to make a world-class smartphone. That's what's going to enable us because the software, which is a key part of it, the problem is now solved by Google and it all becomes about the hardware. And you can take, you can take standard hardware, put the right software on it, and all of a sudden you've got a phone that's as good as any other yeah. but for a fraction of the price. So, um, you know, that made me really, really excited. This would have been, what, 2007 probably, uh, 2007, 2008. Made mm-hmm. me really excited. Um, and, yeah, in an interview I let slip. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're working on an Android phone. Can't wait to, can't wait to have a, uh, a, an Android phone in market and um yeah we actually we made an android phone and uh i showed it to you in um on the gold coast yeah so we had it um we we had it we had it operational it was i believe the second android phone in the world the only other one was the g1 from google itself in partnership i think with htc, HTC yeah yeah it was um it, it was it was them with the the g1 and then we had this as the second as the second phone, and it was all it was all really really exciting. But then, yeah, a few things that I you know can't really talk about got in the way of that, yeah. Um, and and we couldn't launch it, so um, we were a bit upset at that time. But you know, we we now have a full range of Android phones. But yeah, that one was that one was. I remember I remember discussing it, and then waking up a few days later, and someone had emailed me a New York Times article <laughs> about our Android phone ambitions and the Android phone that we were making. So it, it really was it really was an interesting time, and um, it was great that myself and our team were really enthusiastic about it. But the the yeah the lesson learned from it and what we do now and how we operate, especially being a public company, is that. We do things first, then we talk about it. Yeah. I mean, it's funny as well, isn't it, with the whole Android space, how, um, as you say, with sort of the the platform being supplied like that, I personally still get frustrated when I see so many companies, you know, trying to put their kind of skins and things on top of it when you're like, there is the base skin almost feels like the, you know, the most confident execution of just giving someone something that's going to work really, really well. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I 100% agree with you. And if you use any of our uh, Kogan Agora phones now, that that is what they come with. There, there are small tweaks here and there, but the raw Android product, the base Android product is a beautiful product. And it is a tested product with some of the best developers in the world working on it and um, new releases uh, and, and features coming out very frequently. So, yeah, 
Uh, I like you. Um, I'm guessing when you get a new computer or something, you go in and, and the first thing you do is not install programs, but uninstall programs. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so so we're of a similar mindset there. Yeah, for sure. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Um, over the years, you've made some, you know, I think great and interesting acquisitions and things as, you know, as that opportunity, I guess, arose with the growth. Like I think, you know, even sort of, I think Matt Blatt was that was sort of one of them, you know, because they were like an interesting yeah. business that almost has, a, I guess, a similar business profile, but in the furniture sort of space. Um, during the sort of the, you know, the end of the Dick Smith era, you sort of picked up that brand. And I remember, you know, some other business analysts kind of going, you know, you got it for a price that means, you know, the email list alone was probably worth <laughs> worth the price. Um, but yeah, so you've done a lot of sort of interesting deals there to expand, I guess, what you do, you know, sort of at those kind of moments or milestones, what's the thinking that you, you undergo to kind of go, is this a good fit for Kogan? Yeah, um, well, the Dick Smith one was the first the first acquisition we did, and it comes back to it comes back to what we were saying earlier: how trust in a brand can often take decades to build, and um, you've just got to be delivering on your promise day in day out. And when Dick Smith ran into trouble, I couldn't help but think about the times that I, as a little boy, had been walking into Dick Smith stores and looking at components and looking at parts and it was like would have been the worst customer ever for them because I didn't have a cent to spend. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I'd spend hours in the stores looking at the various things and and seeing what's out there. And I remember Dick Smith at the time when they were going out of business. There was a lot of negative press around them, and I would whenever I'd get into like a um, car or t- a taxi and I'd say to them oh, where's the closest Dick Smith? Do you know what time it's open till? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, it's just up the road there. They're open till six. And I realised that even though some people in the business world are constantly following Dick Smith and they know the troubles they ran into and what's happening, most people just know Dick Smith is where they go to get a decent deal on electronics. And they didn't actually know that the stores were the stores were shutting down. So we ran the numbers here internally and we said, well, we've got no ambitions in operating stores, but we can certainly make this a success as a as a digital only business. And that's exactly what it was. And it was we were the first ones to ever make that sort of digital play in an acquisition whereby you know, a company's in administration and we came along and we bought the digital assets. And it was a major, huge success for us. Like, 
it's it's now way bigger than it's ever been. We've successfully rescued the brand, grown the brand, and um, it's got it's got lots of very happy customers. The problem is though that you know because we're public and because everyone got to see what a success we made out of Dick Smith. Any time any similar opportunity came along, it started to be ten times the price. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. So, so that was, but you know, it, it, it was it was a very proud moment for our team to be pioneers of um, such an acquisition. Then during COVID, um, the Matt Black business ran a, a sale process for their digital assets, and because it was COVID and because a lot of retailers weren't weren't too sure of their direction and um, how things were going to pan out, we were pretty sure about what direction our business is heading in. And, um, you know, we, we knew how to execute our long-term strategy. We were able to acquire Matt Blatt through that period because, interestingly, Matt Blatt was selling furniture online uh, in Australia before any other business was selling furniture online in Australia. So they are the pioneers of e-commerce. So even though they had quite a few stores, their their online business is something with a lot of innovation. So we were able to, to acquire that and once again make that a success as well because we were able to leverage on our existing systems and processes. So, uh, yeah, you know, there's, the acquisitions in our business have been... Um, few and far between, but you know when we do, when we do see something that we like, where we can add a lot of value, find more ways to delight the customers and build upon it, uh, we're not shy to pull the trigger. Yeah. Now, look, yeah, you were saying earlier how you know obviously marketing was sort of you know something in the early days you basically couldn't do, and I remember there were times when you know you sort of wear that on your sleeve as as a point of pride that it was you know succeeding without spending money on marketing and things. Um, but I'm also then thinking about the the relation. We'll just call it a relationship with uh, Jerry Harvey. I feel like was he a blessing along the way to kind of almost be someone who would mention you in front of other people and and get spread the word on your behalf sometimes it was a very interesting one because it was um it was inspired by um my liking of you know rap and eminem and um so on so I, it was in college actually that i remember um, listening to Eminem and then Eminem went and um, started a battle or Jarul started a battle with him with Jarul. And I hadn't really been following Jarul, but he started battling with Eminem and Eminem would say something about him. Then Jarul would say something back then Eminem would say something back and so on. So this guy Jarul, who I had never been following, barely had heard of, all of a sudden is occupying part of my mind space. And I remember Eminem ended it all by, um, in one of his replies to Jarul, said, I'm not going to reply anymore because I've sold you more records than you could ever sell yourself. <laughs> and, you know, that sort of obviously stuck around in my mind. And I remember we were filming a Today Tonight story about these TV deals we were doing at Kogan. And when the cameras weren't rolling... Um, I was speaking to the reporter and I was like, boy, if you showed these prices to Jerry, 
he would go nuts. Oh, my God. Like, you know, you would need an ambulance on standby if he saw this. Oh, it would not be good. And um, so, you know, I was sort of provoking. I was provoking that sort of like the naughty kid in the play yard who's like, oh, do you hear what that guy said about your mum kind of thing? Like, (laughs) you know, so... um, doing a bit of that then I'm watching the the today tonight story that evening and before you know it there's Jerry there with a printout of our website going like oh their their prices aren't that cheap we're only a hundred bucks more on that model um and things like that so it it was an absolute you know it, it was a brilliant uh treat for our business and that he responded and you know sort of on one hand, I can understand why he responded because he's a brilliant entrepreneur that's been, you know, at the forefront for so long. He takes things personally. He's up for a fight whenever one's um, uh, in front of him. And that's often what it takes to be, you know, the hustle. You need to be an entrepreneur. Um, and, yeah, we sometimes struggle to keep our mouths shut. And, um, yeah, so he responded and that blew the whole thing up a bit and generated a lot of, a lot of publicity for our business. At the time, we were doing about $10 million a year of sales. Harvey Norman was doing about $5 billion a year of sales. Yeah. So it, it really worked. But if you, if you think about it in a more broader context, every challenger brand needs an enemy because otherwise there's no need for that challenger brand. So, you know, it's difficult to call... Apple a challenger brand now, but back in the day they had Microsoft and they were trying to, you know, do that stuff better. Or Subway had McDonald's and, um, you know, each each challenger brand has a big established player that where they're trying to say, you know what, we do things a little bit differently and we think customers will prefer us. Uh, and because Jerry responded and, um, you know, gave us a bit of air, thankfully that was that was a we were able to to get a lot of fame out of that and get a lot more people seeing what we do and get a lot more people across our deals and then people started buying from us and telling their friends about it and um, here we are today so it is it is a, a very important part of our history and without it uh, without that little mini battle we would not be where we are today yeah. Have you crossed paths over the years since then? I actually imagine you two would probably get along. Yeah, a few people have said that uh, too, but no, uh, uh, have never crossed paths. Oh, someone's going to have to set that up sometime, sit you down for a dinner and, <laughs> yeah. and just film it. <laughs> yeah. ne- never received a single Christmas gift. Oh. <laughs> um, look, what do you feel like is, you know, I guess, whatever comes to mind, but, you know, what do you feel like is the hardest decision you've had to make on this journey in the business? Because, you know, it's like I'm sure it's not all roses and there have been some challenges. Yeah, I guess, look, in, in terms of the in terms of the biggest decisions, I guess IPOing the business was a, was a really big decision for us. Um, and, you know, the, the positives just outweighed the negatives and then we put plans in place to, to tackle the negatives because obviously you want the company to remain with an entrepreneurial culture and you want the team to, to keep acting that way and things like that. But I guess uh, in, in the business, it's not so much hard decisions. We make lots of decisions. 
but also we've built a culture of make decisions quickly, evaluate the outcome using real data, and then decide where you're going to from there. So, you know, keep iterating and you'll get some decisions right, you'll get some decisions wrong, keep collecting data and make sure you use it to make more right decisions than wrong decisions. And anytime you make a wrong decision, don't be scared to admit it, fix it and move on. Yeah. And that's the that's the culture in our business. And very often I tell our teams like, you know, we're not um, we're not building aircraft systems here. It's not like if we stuffed something up that lots of people are going to die. We're not running a hospital. We're not building pacemakers. We're, we, we are operating as a retailer. It's people are coming to us to buy the stuff that's going to make their life that little bit better. And if 0.01% of the time something goes wrong, that's fine. Just send the right item the next day or give the customer a refund or give them a credit or, um, you know, just fix it. So uh, it, most of our customers know that, yeah, they would much rather see much quicker innovation from us and the business developing uh, rather than the conservative approach where nothing changes and we put fall behind the competition. So the approach is is more around you know, fail quickly and keep iterating and fix it and um, do things better and keep that loop going rather than, um, you know, spend too much time thinking about uh, certain decisions. So what, what do you feel like your big picture view is then of, I guess, you know, the the coming decade in the digital world? Because, you know, right, everything from, you know, sort of Australian media versus the social media giants and the search giants, like we've, there's so many conflicts out there right now that in some ways have nothing to do with i guess average people and their relationship with the internet but there's a lot of you know tension over who controls what out there and and i guess how you know where ad dollars flow and all that sort of stuff it's you know it feels like there's a a, a lot of chaos ahead in this decade yeah definitely it's um you know tech is becoming mainstream and it um, it enables our life a lot. So if you look around, if you even just think about the crazy year we've all just had, imagine that happened 10 years ago. Yeah. Like that would have been way worse. Like we were all able to continue to effectively live and effectively learn and get food delivered to our houses and, you know, do all of these sort of things. Um, that's in large thanks to the innovation that's happened um, very recently. I mean, just, ten, 10 years ago, we, we probably would have been on like a, you know, a 1.5 meg ADSL line and would not be doing video conferencing. Yeah. Yeah. How would, I have no idea. Like we managed to grow our team massively over the last year and many of our team have never even been to the office and have never worked face-to-face with one another. Like over 40% of our staff were hired through the pandemic and have never been have never been in the office. Yeah, like, wow. but they're all brilliantly trained. It's all been video calls, interactions online, which is no replacement for in person, by the way. Yeah. But it, it enables you to function. Whereas, if you think back, yeah, ten years ago, like I don't know, like where would have we all been without Uber Eats and a pandemic in the last like 
I guess pizza delivery still sort of existed. So we'd all be eating pizza rather than uh, rather than having a choice of more meals. But like we'd not be being all having way too much salt. Yeah, like do, doing all of these things. So tech is certainly making our life better. But then there's obviously the questions of big tech and controlling too much of our lives and things like that. And I think part of it's probably part of it's probably to do with our own fault and our own behavior. Like we need to be, we need to be actively thinking about, well, what's a healthy lifestyle involve? Like, you know, you go to a cafe and you see kids stuck into an iPad. It's like, you know, that that's not that healthy. Like I don't think just, you know, that that approach is the right approach. Like, yes, iPads are great. They're probably teaching them games and the brain to work in a certain way and developing certain things, but just, oh, I need my kid to be quiet now here, iPad done, is probably not the right approach. But like we laugh at that for kids or we see how funny it is how that works, but it's happening to us adults as well. Like it's not uncommon for me to, you know, I'd be on the couch and I'll browse a bit of social media and then I'm just like, whoa, what happened the last 10 minutes? Like I'll never get those 10 minutes of my life back and did I see anything? interesting no that was just a a complete brain numbing that just happened like I did not need to see any of that I should have just um you know spent the time to go for a walk or to read a book or or do something else so we are becoming a bit too you know we should be aware of how we use technology and realizing that it's not our entire world that the world you see in the end of social media or just because somebody published a certain article online or an opinion, that's not the whole world. The digital world is not the entire world. And we need to, you know, rather than censor it or anything like that, we probably just need to be aware of it and be aware of, of where we get our information, how we get our information and how much time we spend in this virtual world. Like that's the that's probably the healthy solution. And then on the other hand, there's also, you know, the, the whole uh, concept of privacy, which we take very seriously at Kogan. So, you know, you get to, you get to see all of, your, all, all of your data with us. And if you ask us to delete your account or your data, then um, we, we do that. And uh, there, there's a lot of companies now that, that have data on us. And I guess the, the most important thing for people is, well, do I actually care about, you know, first, Google's not interested in what I personally am searching in. They're, they're interested in the aggregated data and they're interested in, in serving ads. And um, there's a lot of services where it's like, oh, yeah, well, I am giving up some information there, but look at the benefit I'm getting in return. Like, you don't have to use Google if you don't want to. You don't have to use Facebook if you don't want to and so on. So I think it's just there's an education piece that needs to happen around the fact that all of these pro, uh, all of these um, platforms just grew so quickly and became an important part of our life that quickly. And the average person doesn't really understand how they work or what they store and where and how. Um, I think that we just need to become better digital citizens and get an understanding of our data and our information and and if we don't want someone to have certain things, then we should stop using that service. Yeah. I mean, how important have analytics been to you over the years? Because I mean, it, it does seem like, I'm sure at some point, well, I'm not sure, you know, 
when you know moves have been made to potentially start doing some marketing over time it seems like you know that there's so many hooks and things now that you could essentially know you know for every dollar we spend on on a digital marketing opportunity we know we're ahead and therefore you can you know snowball that that is a huge part of our business and uh, we often joke that uh, we're a statistics business masquerading as an e-commerce company because our business is about looking at data and looking at, um, you know, like even our product ideas. We get hundreds of thousands of people coming to our site every day. We've got a search box on our site. Our teams are collecting data whenever somebody did a search and didn't click a result, meaning that either we didn't have the right product there or um, we didn't have no product at all. And they're collecting that data and then they're saying, all right, well, um, X number of people in the last 72 hours have done this search or in the last week, there's a huge opportunity here. We need to source these products or we need to manufacture these products or we need to speak to that supplier and expand the range. Like everything from that to all of our marketing where for every single cent, we know what people are clicking, um, what they're interested in, whether they end up shopping or not, and then whether we should keep advertising on these words and not these words and so on. So if you look across even our buying teams, the vast majority of them do not come from a buying background that we test for uh, data analytics skills. So like a Microsoft Excel uh, a Microsoft Excel modeling test and a logical and analytical reasoning test because we're not there to create the demand or try and convince people to want certain products. What we're trying to do is say, well, based on what we know people want, we want to find a more efficient way to deliver it and give them a better price. So uh, data and analytics is a huge part of it. And that is a big part of uh, the success of online businesses and, and how they operate. And the game's changing in that regard. Like, you know, even with Spotify compared to radio or, um, you know, digital marketing compared to TV. We ran TV ads through the pandemic because uh, it, it was like one of the first times that we actually did ads where we couldn't measure if they were successful or not. Yeah. But our thinking was most advertisers have pulled out um, because, you know, during at the start of the pandemic, everyone thought the world's about to end. So most advertisers stopped their budgets and pulled out and we were able to secure advertising space for cheaper than ever during a time when everyone was at home watching TV. So we thought yeah. if it's ever going to work, yeah. now, now's the time. And, you know, so we spent a little bit of money on that and we're still in the position of do we know whether it worked or not? No, nah, have no clue. But we know that if we were ever going to do it, that was the time to do it. Yeah, it always seems to me like if, you know, if someone puts an ad on the Super Bowl, at least you sort of know, okay, we know exactly when our ad ran and then you could at least try to see if, you know, did people pull out their phones and search for something. But if if it's kind of just running at random occasions in the day on a normal TV channel, it's, yeah, pretty hard to find a way to try to measure the reaction. Yeah. But then even with the Super Bowl, it's like, yes, you can measure that instant Twitter-like response. Like, was someone sitting there with their phone and searched it straight away? But you don't know if you ran your ad for, you know, that juice at that time. And a month later, I was walking past a 7-Eleven yeah. 
And I was like, oh, I saw that on the Super Bowl. Let me try that. Like, there's no way of there's no yeah. way of tracking that. So it, it's very, very difficult. But, you know, all those big advertising, um, you know, space owners of the TV stations and the newspapers tell you, well, you've got to do lots of it at scale. And that's when it'll have its best impact. Yeah. Look, I do feel like I could just hang out and talk to you all day. This has been really fun. And it, I do feel like you're the same guy that I met 15 years ago, probably 13 years ago, I think it was probably around the time we first met in yeah. person. Um, but one last question is, you know, in hindsight, you know, when you decided I'm going to make it Kogan.com because I can get my surname, you know, uh, how does it feel to have put your name on the shingle that is, you know, of a, an IPO'd company that's now a really big deal? It's a... Look, it's interesting because even the story behind the name's a funny one because the intention was not to call it Kogan at the start, but my mate who ran a um, a digital agency or a, is a design agency, at the time I had a few different brands in mind and I asked them to make me a logo and uh, they sent back the logo they made and their designer, just as a joke, had made the Kogan logo with the on switch there. Yeah. And I and I saw the on switch and I thought switched on. That's what we're all about and we're selling TVs and that's a key and and I really like that idea. So then ended up going with that logo even though it wasn't even part of the brief. So now to have to have that logo on so many products out there and have us uh as a as a recognized brand it's it's humbling. It's like you look you look around and you think you know, could never have envisioned any of this. And the number of customers we've impacted and saved them money and that's enabled them to, you know, have more savings or more money to spend in their community, plus all of the staff uh, that have made a good living off the uh, Kogan business and the challenges that, you know, we've been able to overcome. It's, a, um, you know, just I- I- incredibly thankful for everyone that I've had had the opportunity to work with and interact within the business because when I started it, I just uh, was looking for a way to bring a couple of TVs in at a cheaper price and sell them online because I thought, oh, you know, maybe this will let me get out of my corporate job. Uh, could, could never have could never have dreamt um, of anything like this. Awesome, Nelson. Thank you so much. It's been really great to catch up and yeah, talk about old stuff and new stuff. Yeah, thanks, Seamus. Awesome to awesome to catch up and uh, happy birthday to your son. <laughs> Thank you. And um, and yeah, it's uh, it, it's quite special to do this interview with you, given the the role you played and you know the relationship we built in the very early days so uh, i mean it is, it's kind of funny to think back on as you say like you know when like gizmodo in in spain i remember it was actually a really big site um yeah within that network of sites but i remember having kind of weird little moments myself where we'd write something and then like on the australian version but then someone in like the german government called you know, uh, called the RACV because we'd written about a technology that they'd created that was one of the first to help get um, traffic data into cars, you know. And it was like just because of a bunch of us kids sitting around writing about cool stuff on the internet. <laughs> That's it, yeah. It's a, Information now propagates at a faster rate than ever and it's, a, you know, especially for you to be part of that movement and seeing how 
how all of that happened. I think I saw something a while ago of like in 2010, we created 10 times more information than all of 1990 combined or the whole decade combined or, you know, like it's the the magnitude at which we're now consuming and creating uh, information is just, is just incredible. And I remember, um, you know, the, the time we spent in the, in the early days and that, that whole community of the, um, journalists and bloggers that are specifically interested in tech and uh, had those followers were a key part of how I was able to have a brand with no budget but a product with good value and able to get that message out there. So, yeah, it's uh, I look back on those times very fondly. Jetpacks are overrated is part of the Biteside Podcast Network. Check out our latest show, Bits, a daily tech news bulletin in under five minutes to keep you up to speed with all the latest news. We'll be back with another episode of Jetpacks real soon. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards... Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.